Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number two of the Ways of Beleriand. So first, I want to apologize. Several of you, Arthur, Laurel, and Yana, have all alerted me to the fact that the chat link has vanished from the page. My apologies about that. I fear We're in the middle of doing something very complicated with the website. Uh, I have to admit, I don't actually, myself, fully understand what this is. It's totally above my pay grade, but uh, my, uh, my, my, my people are doing something to the website, and um, I, uh, I, I, so I think it must have, th that must have ended up deactivating our chat service thing for now, so uh, we'll, I, I will try to make sure we get that back uh, for next time, uh, so, because I think, I think it must have been the whole thing got disconnected in the course of, this is a, a big migration that we're doing um so anyway uh, again uh, i i uh, <laughs> forgive my vague hand waving at what's going on with our website uh but um uh but anyway so yeah uh so we're kind of in process there so my apologies uh for that um so i fear that you guys might have to and actually that's why i'm starting a few minutes late because i actually saw your comments before we started and i was like quick searching through uh, my correspondence to see if I could figure out what was going on with it to be able to tell you, and I think it's um, I, I think it I think it's down for now. So I'm, I fear we'll have to do something uh, uh, we'll have to do without that for this week, and I'll try to bring it back for uh, uh, for for next time. So anyway, um, all right, let's uh, let's move forward because uh, we're. Uh, not exactly precisely on schedule so let's uh let's move forward with uh with the story of Turin here um i want to just say at the beginning i am um although this is the most truncated version of the Turin story of course as you saw today it stops you know after only when Turin's in Nargothrond and before he's even messed up Nargothrond yet, so we're only you know we're well under halfway through Turin's story uh, when this cuts off, and yet I find the Turin who is depicted in this version of the story by far the most appealing Turin of any of Tolkien's Turins of any of the many revisions from. The Book of Lost Tales version to through this version to the later Narn, the published Silmarillion, the polished up Children of Hurin. I love this Turin, um, and uh, he would be if he stayed more like this. <laughs> he would be one of my very favorite uh, Tolkien characters. It's uh, it's really kind of making me sad. Not only because I always. I find alliterative meter something really easy to get into. It can be kind of an obstacle at the beginning because it has such a different cadence and it introduces a different kind of syntax. But um, but I find it really grows on me. So I'm you know um, I'm still you know kind of rattling along on the poems you know on the poetry and really wishing that I could uh, uh, that I could get to the end of this one. Um, it's uh, this, uh, you know, in this read through, uh, the alliterative ch Children of Hurin is sh shooting up my list of things I most wish that uh, that Tolkien had finished. Um, I think it it uh, it still falls below the fall of Arthur, 
but it's in stiff competition now with the unfinished tour uh, from Unfinished Tales, the long prose tour that he was doing uh, in Unfinished Tales, where he got as far as Turin arriving at the edge of Gondolin uh, and then uh, broke off. But um, uh, but anyway, yeah, Nancy and Nancy still voting for tour. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. It's it's up there. I mean, those two are in my in my mind now. Those two are really neck and neck. Um, I, uh, I I I would really have loved to to see. I, I mean, I wish he'd finish the Lay of Lathian too, which we'll get to, of course, later on. Um, but uh, but my desire for the end of the Lay of Lathian is not nearly as as acute. That is, I don't feel like I've lost so very much as we have by not seeing where this Turin's character was going to go. Um, but anyway, more on that later as we, you know, get through uh, a bunch of things. So you remember last time we were uh, we were looking at after a bunch of sort of introductory talk and then some look at the verse and all that kind of thing. Um, we were looking especially at Turin's early grief, those the descriptions of Turin's character, and then last time we ended with that uh, that really heartbreaking scene when he calls out after his mother after. He is gone out of sight into the woods, and we see her weeping and not letting anyone see that she's weeping, and him not even letting her see him as he calls out to her, but not being able to forbear crying out uh, as he is taken away. Um, so in the context of that, let's look at uh, Orgoff and the uh, drinking horn to the face uh, incident. So here's Orgoff's insult. Remember, he, first, he, first he, he ostentatiously offers him a comb, right? He's got a fancy gold comb, which he offers to, to you know, pointedly, mockingly offers to Turin, right? And Turin, not interested in the comb. And then Orgoff responds, Nay, and thou knowest not thy need of comb, nor its use, quoth he. Too young thou leftest thy mother's ministry, and twere meet to go that she teach thee tame thy tangled locks. If the women of Hithlam be not wild and loveless, uncouth and unkempt is their cast-off sons. Then a fierce fury, like a fire blazing, was born of bitterness in his bruised heart. His white wrath woke at the words of scorn, for the women of Hithlam washed in tears, and a heavy horn to his hand lying, with gold adorned for good drinking. Of his might unmindful, thus moved in ire, he seized, and swinging, swiftly flung it in the face of Orgoff. Okay. Um, now, what if, first of all, one small point. Um, if I recall correctly, the Silmarillion refers to you know that that he took up a, a drinking vessel, or so doesn't use the, the 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 noun vessel and cast it in Cyrus's face, um, uh, so that his mouth was broken. I don't know about you, but I always pictured that as a cup or you know like a goblet or something. Uh, but of course, uh, envisioning this this drinking horn uh, covered in gold. It's a lot easier to see how you would break Orgoff's head with it. Anyway, look at, tell me now, what do you see? What is significant about the insult that Orgoff gives? This, I think, is, um, yeah, Karita, his might unminding means he doesn't know how strong he is, or at least he's not paying attention. Like, he's forgetting about how strong he is. Basically, in his wrath, he forgets to pull his punch. Right, um, and just moved in ire, he swings and swiftly flings the the drinking horn in his face, unmindful of the fact that 
he's really too strong to do that with uh, with uh, with safety. Um, okay, Erica. Yes, he insults his mother and sister, and not just himself. Notice, of course, uh, you know him saying uh, his white wrath woke at the words of scorn for the women of Hithlam washed in tears. We have seen, of course, the poem has emphasized very strongly, much more strongly than any other version, how Turin is not only sad, thinking of you know missing his mom, being separated from his family, um, being worried about them. He's not remember he's not heard any news from them for five years, right? So he, as far as he knows, they've all been killed. But we've seen him, we just saw him earlier in this same scene when everybody else was uh, at first mirthful at the party and then afterwards at least intent when they were listening to the song of the kinslaying. That kind of cut down on the mirth a little bit, I think, probably. But but anyway, remember Turin's not listening? So what is he doing? But Turin is not just like self-absorbed or something, right? He's thinking about his people and the sorrow of his people. So he spends a lot of time reflecting on the fact that the people of Hithlam are suffering and probably his mom and sister suffering as well. So, um, he, uh, um, so, so one other element that we get here is it's not just you know, several of you are, are, are sort of pointing out how he's, you know, basically responding to a sort of an elvish version of a your mama joke, which is kind of true, uh, but but it's it's more, it's different from that, right? This is not just like you know your mother's ugly and wears combat boots. This is um, one thing that the poem points to very clearly is that again he, especially in his current frame of mind, he has just been reflecting. On, not just on his own sorrows, not just the sorrows of his own family, but the sorrows of his people, right? So to hear this elf dandy mocking them, the, the, the profound lack of compassion, him just having pictured them washed in tears, right? And then to have him mocking them um, for this superficial reason, and not just that, but um, the women of Hithlam be not wild and loveless, uncouth and unkempt. And the way that that kind of dovetails with what seemed to have been likely his own thoughts earlier, that is, maybe my, maybe, maybe the women of Hithlam, you know, especially my mom and sister, maybe the women of Hithlam are in fact cast out. Maybe they do, maybe they are having to live in the wild. Um, they certainly are already, you know, marginalized in Hithlam. Perhaps they're also homeless. Perhaps they are, you know, living uh, in the forest, wild and loveless, uncouth and unkempt. That that might be true. Right, um, and then and here's him, you know, mocking for that. I mean, that's that's just, um, it's just, it's just horrible. But uh, but there's more. There's more than that, right? Um, notice where he starts his insult. If you don't know a that you need a comb or b how to use it, too young thou leftest thy mother's ministry. Oh, you left your mom too young. Oh, talk about sensitive subjects. And twere meet to go that she teach thee, tame thy tangled locks. Go back to your mom and teach her how to comb your hair. It's like, go back to my mother? <laughs> Did you just say that? I get the... It's hard. I mean, the word insensitivity, you know, fails by orders of magnitude to, to, to you know, convey what he's doing. But, but, but I keep coming back to that word because of... It's it's not you know and the extent to which this is absolutely malicious on his part you know the extent to, it it seems 
that seems to me uncertain. That is, Orgoff seems to me uh, boorish, but kind of clueless. That is, I, I don't get the impression, necessarily, or rather, yeah, let me say it that way. I don't find that the text compels me to conclude that Orgoff knew perfectly well how all of this stuff would hit him. Um, he seems... Orgoff himself seems too shallow. The, the way that he's described um, is seems to me a little too shallow to think that he has that much malice, that he's really trying to wound Turin as deeply as he in fact is. Um, it seems to me not only more fitting to the character of Orgoff as he's been described, but also more fitting to the sort of overall spirit of this tragedy that Orgoff insults him, you know, wounds him very, very deeply without realizing how deeply. Yes, he meant to mock him. Yes, he meant to scorn him. But I don't think he meant to pour, you know, uh, rubbing alcohol into wounds quite that deep. Um, So... And again, it seems that the, the, the sort of the tragic result um, and his death is uh, fitting, uh, of course, and there's no sympathy for him, I think, presented in the text. Um, but, um, but again, I don't, I don't but, but there's still an element of tragedy there, right? That, you know, that he, this, his, this, this whole situation is kind of tragically misfired on both sides. Um, is the impression, anyway, um, that this um, that this gives? Yana says he seems less malicious than the later version. I agree, Yana. Though I'm not sure he isn't more malicious than he was in the Book of Lost Tales version. And the difference here is remember the emphasis, the greater emphasis, the increased emphasis that the poem has placed here on Turin's status in the court. He is the one who has been preserving Doriath. So there seems to be at least more room for envy, and therefore uh, for increased malice on Orgoff's part, than I think we saw in the Book of Lost Tales. But um, but anyway, uh, I, I do think that um, that there is that sort of element of tragedy here, but again, but we can see what Turin hears in this. right? So again, the you left your mom too early, uh, sort of the horrible uh, coincidental pain of that. Um, but then that last phrase, right? They're cast off sons. Oh, man. Um, Carita, as you say, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Carita says, you know, the ins- all, all, every bit of it goes straight for the heart. You left your mom. She wasn't around. The women of your people are gross. You are a cast off. Yeah, your mom doesn't love you, right? Um, the fact that she didn't teach you how to use a comb, show that you, you, your mom doesn't love you, she would be ashamed of you, you are cast off. Not sent off for safety, right? Not, you know, here to be p- p- potentially, as he in his youthful exuberance said to his mom, I will, you know, I- I'm going to come back, I'll be the deliverer of my people, right? You'll see, I'm going to go and I'm going to get strong and I'm going to come back and I'm going to rescue you, right? Um, no, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, the that 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 implication, which seems to strike a chord in him, you know, and remembering his cry to his mom, mom, "Don't send me away! Don't send me away!" You've been cast off. Your mom didn't want you. Right? She didn't care enough about you to teach you to comb your hair properly. Um, it's um, that's just uh, 
amazing. <laughs> so so I, I find this again. I find that Orgoff's uh, now the the significance of Cyros's insult in the later, of course, his name changes in the later versions. Um, it's kind of cool because it f- directly foreshadows uh, Neonor's troubles, right? That you know, do the women of Hithlum, uh, you know, run naked through the woods, right? Clad only, in, run run naked like the deer, clad only in their hair, right? Is what he says later on, um, which is more crass, more simple of an insult, right? Um, and it touches still kind of touches the same nerve about, you know, the women of Hithlam washed in tears and how he's making light of this fact that they might be fleeing for their lives naked and alone in the woods. But it, but it, it's also cool because it's foreshadowing what's going to happen later on. Um, so, I mean, I like that moment in the later versions, but, um, but this is, is much more poignant, again, in, in, in a similar way to how his, um, Part, you know, his separation from Morwen was enormously poignant uh, in the poetic version. Um, his reaction. But the slayer weary, his hands laved in the hidden stream that strikes for the gates, nor stayed his tears. Who has cast, he cried, a curse upon me, for all I do is ill, and an outlaw now, in bitter banishment and blood guilty, of my foster father I must flee the halls, nor look on the lady beloved again. Yea, his heart to Hithlam had hastened him now, but that road he dared not, lest the wrath he draw of the elves after him, and their anger alight, should speed the spears of despite in Morgoth, or the hills of Hithlam, to hunt him down, lest a doom more dire than they dreed of old he meted his mother and the maid of tears. So there's that, first there's that sort of tantalizing reference, um, uh, I must flee the halls, nor look on the lady beloved again. Wait, what, what beloved lady? At first, again, if if we just sort of stopped there, it'd be like, wait a second. Like, uh, does he is he in love with somebody in Doriath that we don't know? Like, you know, it kind of in the context almost invites us to think that. Right? Oh, I've got to leave Doriath now, and I must never see it again, and I'll never see the beloved lady again. And it's like, wait, who are we talking about? No, it's his mom. Right? Then it's the transition afterwards. I think makes that clear. His heart to Hithlam had hastened him now but that road he dared not. Um, so we see his chain of thought. Now, this is one of the things... Now, I've... I've between the Book of Lost Tales class before and this one now and, and the Unfinished Tales class before that, I, I've, I have so many different versions of tour and story in my head that I might be getting them confused, but feel free to fact-check this for me. Um, in the published Silmarillion version, the narrator gives no explanation for why Turin doesn't go back to Morwen when he flees, right? So he flees from from Doriath, right? Uh, 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 um, uh, what's his name? Uh, why am I blanking? The elf lord who, not Beleg, but the other one begins with an M, help. Um, that I, mm-hmm. Mablung, thank you, Alyssa. Mablung, I don't know why. I kept going like Maglor. Wait, wait, no, wait, wait. Uh, Mablung, thank you. Mablung, uh, when, so Mablung can free him. Mablung comes up just in time to see, you know, the naked Cyros plummet to his doom and Torin chase him off the cliff. And then, you know, Mablung is right there and Torin's like, uh, this looks bad, right? Um, so, you know, Mablung says, come back, and he says, no, I won't do it, and he leaves, right? So that's what happens in the published, published Silmarillion. But, 
Like I said, he goes and he flees off and he's like, I am Nathan, Nathan the wronged, and he goes and he, he, he you know, forms up his outlaw band. No explanation is given, if I'm remembering correctly, in the published Silmarillion for why he doesn't just go back to Hithlum then. Which seems an obvious question, right? Um, uh, that it, you know, like, okay, you, you've, you've left Doriath, you can't go back to Doriath. You've been kind of wondering what was going on with your mom. Why don't you uh, go back there, right? Um, um, why, that would be good, right? That would be the logical thing to do. In the published Silmarillion, he doesn't do it, and we're given no explanation of why he doesn't do it. Um, we are in the book of in, in unfinished tales, um, but um, but anyway, um, I I think that here, especially in the context of what we've just seen, his reasoning again, seems to me maximally emotionally powerful. Um, yes, Nancy, he does believe that he's not only an outlaw, but he, he fears that the elves are going to hunt him down, and that if he flees to Hithland, they might chase him there, and that, therefore, he might bring destruction upon his family. And, Nancy, I agree with you. What we see here is a Turin who is very, very willing to believe that he's hated and cast out, right? Cast off was that final phrase that really stung him. Now he's cast out, right? Um, and he uh, uh, does seem willing to believe that they're going to hunt him down. Roy says that seems crazy. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of extreme for him to think that, right? Um, but, uh, and you can see, you know, Tolkien clearly seems to have decided to move away from that, Um that could be absent in the published Silmarillion uh, because he just doesn't... Because, you know, that's just kind of skimmed over because it's so compressed. But in, I don't think that... I'm pretty sure that reason is not given in the Narn, in Unfinished Tales or in the Children of Hurin. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, Erica, good point. His first thought here is, <clears throat> I've clearly been cursed. Right? Um, and... Um, and that's uh, that. That does seem to to sort of factor in. But again, notice where does his thought go? As soon as he's you know he's, he's washing you know watching the blood wash off of his hands, and thinking, now I'm never going to be able to see my mother again. Right um, now, it's not going to. So it's that's for him the consequence of losing Doriath. Um, and, um, yeah, Yana says the sad thing is in this version, he never even finds out that he's not hunted. Um, yeah, you're right. Beleg doesn't know what happened. So he, you, you're right. Never anywhere does he even hear that he's been pardoned. He doesn't know that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, Keep going. So, he goes out into the woods. He's with his outlaw band. There Beleg the Brave, on the borders of Doriath, they found and fought, and few were with him, and o'erborne by numbers they bound him at last, till their captain came to their camp at eve. Afar from that fight his fate that day had taken Turin on the trail of the orcs, as they hastened home to the hills of iron, with the loot, la with the loot laden of the lands of men. 
Then soon was him said that a servant of Thingol they had tied to a tree, and Turin coming, stared astonied at the stern visage of Beleg the brave, his brother-in-arms, of whom he learned the lore of leaping blades, and of bended bow and barbed shaft, and the wild woodland's wisdom secret, when they blent in battle the blood of their wounds. Um... Turin's choice to become uh, an outlaw and to waylay and rob and presumably murder uh, elf and man as well as orc is, I think, no, I'm pretty confident, the least defensible thing that this Turin does. Um, And um, I... uh, he seems to do it in a kind of I don't know, the conclusion seems to be you know, Nancy, I'm thinking back to your comment about how quick Turin seems to be to believe that he's not loved, right? Um, In that sense in that sense you can almost say this is a dangerously misleading kind of thing to say, that one of Turin's biggest problems could be described as a lack of faith. That is, he does not trust that what he believes to be true really is true. Um, He has every reason to believe that Thingol is going to be good and fair to him, but he doesn't think that's likely to happen. Um, He has lots of reason to believe that his mother did not just cast him off but yet he clearly has some sort of secret doubts in that. Um, here he seems to be at sort of his lowest, he's certainly at his lowest moral point, at least to this point, but it seems to be, the, the way that it's described seems to be, everyone has rejected me, so, you know, screw it. I'm just going to, everyone's hand is set against me, I'm going to set my hand against everybody, right? Since nobody loves me and everybody rejects me, I'm, uh, I'm just... I'm out, right? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna seek, I mean, what the band is doing, they're just seeking their own enrichment, right? They're just looking out for themselves. They're, I don't know that indulging is a fair verb to use of this rugged outlaw band, but, but anyway, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's nevertheless, you know, his sort of choice to say, um, you know, Everybody's against me, so I'm going to be against everybody else. Um, and it's it's like uh, I don't know. I mean, this parallel is probably strained, but it did kind of remind me of the way that Morgoth is depicted earlier in the poem about how he it's it's the Morgoth that we see in this poem is much less like I shall rival the Almighty and set myself up as a god. He and Hurin don't have a theological conversation. Um, he rather just seems to be against everybody who's against him and trying to put down all of his enemies, um, or the people that he believes are his enemies, which in his case they really are his enemies. Um, but, uh, yeah, Laurel says it, it uh, reminds me of a teen rebel phase uh, set to extreme. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
but uh, but anyway, no, Arthur. I don't. I don't mean that. You know, I'm not. Th- I'm not thinking of uh, Morgoth being like uh, Milton Satan. It, it's not. It's not like that. He's not. Not. I agree with you. He's not noble enough for that. But um, uh, no. I mean, if anything, Arthur. I. I. I guess I would argue the opposite. That there's there's a kind of pettiness in Morgoth's position and in Morgoth's outlook as we see it very briefly hinted at in those earlier passages that I don't see in the other. The Morgoth of the published Silmarillion takes himself extremely seriously, and that's the premise of his debate with Hurin. It's when he doesn't get Hurin to treat him quite as seriously as he would like to be treated that he gets really, really upset and curses him. Um, So, you know, it's not that he's trying to get Hurin to work for him, as he is in this version. Um, Yeah. Anyway, um... But uh, but Erica, I agree with you. The image of them of Beleg and Turin bleeding together in battle is really really powerful, and that just like him meeting the eyes of Beleg, um, you know, the stern visage of Beleg the Brave, sitting there, and there's Beleg really ticked off, right? Um, and what what this calls him back to is that sense of connectedness, right? This the wake up call to Turin here is basically no, there is somebody who loves you. Right, um, there is somebody who cares about you, and you are, in fact, being again unjust or unfair is 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 far too mild a term for his attitude of like, heck, uh, you know, okay, Thingolimus people are against me, so I'm going to be against them too. That's just not right under the circumstances and under uh, you know un, you know w- given what he um, what he has done and what has what what they have done for him. Um, but um but anyway so but here's Beleg to remind him very pointedly of the bond that he does still have um and uh, and Erica you're right when he's reminded that someone cares he reforms his behavior absolutely um he changes and he changes remarkably remember how stubborn the later Turin still is right in fact leading Beleg to say to him hard you are Turin and stubborn right Beleg in the poem never has to say that to Turin, because as soon as he does show up, Turin's like, I reform. Um, And Beleg says, great, I'll join you. Uh, Let's fight. In fact, as we see, here's uh, Beleg's conversation with him. Um, Lo, lo, not know I of the news thou tellest, that is, you were exiled? What? You killed somebody? You know, that that Orgoff idiot? Oh, okay. Uh, Is no idea, right? Lo, not know I of the news thou tellest, but outlawed or honored, thou ever shalt be the brother of Beleg, come bliss, come woe. Yet little me likes that thy leaping sword the life should drink of the leaguered elves. Are the grim Glamhoth then grown so few, or the foes of fairy feeble-hearted that warlike men have no work to do? Shall the foes of fairy be friends of men? Betrayest thou thy troth whom we trusted of yore? Nor of armed orc, nor of elf of the wood, nor of any on earth have I honor or love, O Beleg the bowman. This band alone I count as comrades, my kindred in woe and friendless fate, our foes the world. You see it? Right? You see that like that? Nobody else loves me, only this band, so we're sticking together and we're looking out for ourselves because everybody else is against us. Let the bow of Beleg to your band be joined, and swearing death to the sons of darkness, let us swage our sorrow and the smart of fate. Our valor is not vanquished, nor vain the glory that once we did win in the woods of old. 
Um, Nancy, you're right. Beleg isn't a friend. He is a kind of mentor. One of the most powerful things to me in this version of the story is that Beleg comes... Yes, Beleg in the later versions seeks him out because he loves him. It is his love for Turin that prompts him to seek Turin out. And yet he is still coming primarily as an emissary of Thingol. He comes to bring the news. You've been pardoned. I'm come to bring you back. Right. So when Turin resists him, which is what leads Beleg to say hard you are and stubborn, he's resisting Thingol, right? Um, not necessarily Beleg. Here it's, in a sense, more pure. Beleg doesn't even know. He's totally outside that, right? Um, his willingness to be with Turin and to stick with Turin um, is has nothing to do... He's not representing anybody else. This is only... So the emphasis, therefore, is much more strongly on Beleg's friendship with Turin, on his own love for Turin. Um, and, but he just has the one criticism, right? He doesn't even criticize him for not going back to Doriath. He doesn't even suggest he goes back to Doriath, right? He's ju- he just says, you say that nobody loves you. I do, Right? I'll stay with you. You're my brother in arms. I will stay with you. But I've got an idea. How about we fight orcs, okay? Instead of elves and men. Does that make sense? Can we agree on that? <laughs> right? Um, so he's calling him back to his allegiance in a very broad sense. Not his allegiance to Doriath, right? Um, but uh, but but his more broadly, his sort of moral allegiance. You know, that, you know, betrayest thou thy troth whom we trusted of yore? Have you become an enemy? of the kingdom of Doriath now that you used to defend? Like, how does that happen? In what way does that make sense? And Turin's, you know, that at line 605 is the place where he most baldly explains why he's doing what he's doing. And it sounds pretty lame, right? (laughs) In the context of what, you know, like, uh, really, so that's why. That's why you're now fighting against elves and men as well, right? Um, You know, so Belg is like, "Is is that just me or is that really stupid? Come, okay, well, you know, I'll join you. I'm with you. Now, everyone's not against you, but but orcs are against us. How about we fight orcs? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Roy says uh, the the reference to uh, kissed him kindly right before this passage has this incredible diffusing quality to Turin's anger and gives us a very intimate image of the two. Yeah, I agree. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, very good. Um Roy also mentions how our foes the world sounds very adolescent yet, doesn't it? I mean, that's the that's the thing that, uh, you know, picking up on what several of you had been talking about before. Um, yeah, yeah. And Arthur, you're right. Belig offers him the thing that he wants most, which is family, right? No, I am, I am your brother, right? Um, you've not lost everyone. But, of course, in every barrel, there's one bad apple, right? The bad apple in this case is not the tragic dwarf meme, but Blodren Boar's son. But Blodren Boar's son for booty lusted, for the loud laughter of the lawless days, and meats unmeasured, and mead goblets refilled and filled, and the flagons of wine that went as water in their wild revels. Now tales have told that trapped as a child, he was dragged by the dwarves to their deep mansions, and in Nogrod nurtured, and in naught was like, spite blood and birth to the blissful elves." Um, okay. Um, 
<laughs> several of you are pointing that pointing out that like Turin and the Outlaw Band or you know Nathan the Wronged and the Outlaw Band would be a great rock band name. Uh Carita uh suggests that Our Foes the World could be a great could could be a track title on their on their on their album. Um <laughs> but uh but uh, no Arthur just just don't don't touch that first line. But, but just don't go there. It's not. Um, anyway, uh, so, so um, the um, <clears throat> side note here from the t- we, we 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 interrupt this story of Turin uh, to notice something quite interesting in passing. Um, Blodrin, as he's the bad apple, um, he gets. You know his role gets diffused into two different characters later on in the in the Narn slash Children of Hurin. We get the uh, Endrog, isn't that his name? The the one guy uh, in the band who is resistant and um, and uh, uh, you know the the one who hates Beleg. And then um, we have Meme, of course, who actually betrays them. Blodrin is both rolled into one. His reasons for disliking, you know, he 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 preferred the 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 wild lawless days, um, you know, the good old days back when they used to, when they used to just rob and kill everybody, and uh, there was a lot more drinking, and the revels were more wild, and now they're all like serious and like let's fight evil, and it's so much duller around the outlaw camp these days than it used to be. Um, Blodrin is not into this whole like let us swear an oath. Um, uh, to uh, you know, oppose the, the 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 armies of Morgoth thing, totally lame. Um, what happened to Blodrin? Why is Blodrin the way that he is? It's all about those darn dwarves, right? Uh, some of those dwarves are pretty bad lots, right? Um, Sarah King asks, "Is this the only instance we get of dwarves kidnapping someone?" It is that I recall. Um, uh, I can't think of any other example when dwarves did that. Um, uh, two quick things that I would point out. One, Blodrin seems to be an elf um, and not was like it spite blood and birth to the blissful elves. Um, so I think that um, I think that Blodrin is an elf, which means that the outlaw band is not all human, which again it, it explicitly is later on. Um, this seems to be uh, the, this seems to be a multi-ethnic group of outlaws that Turin has uh, has joined up with here, which also means that in that sense, Beleg's joining is not as strange. Um, and you know there was that um, in the later story, especially in the 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 longer Narn and in the Children of Hurin we get um, this kind of tension, right, with Turin at the middle. On the one hand, we've got these, these uh, you know, outcasts of his people, right, other humans. He's been living, he's been the one human living among elves for almost all of his life, and he, and now he's found his own people. They're not much to look at, but they're humans, right? And he has sort of, res- he has taken up some shadow of his hereditary lordship over them, um, and, you know, and that's kind of like building a little, and he's drawn towards, but then Beleg comes to the camp, right, and Beleg is like, come back to Doriath, come back to the elves, and so here's Torn in the middle being like, I like Beleg, and, but I don't, and, 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 but they're the humans over here, and he's, yeah, that's part of the dynamic in the later story, we don't get that 
here. So the fact that Blodrin is an elf actually strikes me as really important, even though it's a small detail. Um, it strikes me as a as an important thing um, because we're not we're not getting that element in this story at all. This isn't about Turin and his human heritage or or you know sort of finding his lost tribe. There's that that, that element is just gone here. Um, it's all about his own sort of moral position in his moral reform, and Blodrin who resists that moral reform, despite the fact that he's an elf. Exactly, uh, Erica. He does not, in fact, remain good people, uh, as uh, uh, elves are described in The Hobbit. But it's all the dwarves' fault. They kidnapped him when he was a child, and they dragged him to their deep mansions and nurtured him, so he was raised by these evil dwarves in Nograd. Unless you think I'm being unfair in calling them evil, remember, they are. Um, early dwarves, forget Thorin, you know, forget Balin, forget Bomber, uh, forget Gimli. Um, the dwarves in the early version, we've seen those of you who did the, the Book of Lost Tales with me will remember, the dwarves are they are just flat evil. They're not even craftsmen, right? They're merchants more than anything else. Um, they, um, they are... Um, um, uh, they're not as bad as the orcs, but they're in league with the orcs as often as not. Um, it's... The transformation of the the transformation the uh, uh, you know recuperation of the dwarves in Tolkien's world um, happens in the Hobbit. It's the Hobbit that does that. Prior to the Hobbit, we get very little glimpse even of good dwarves, and I actually think um, if you come at the Hobbit from the Book of Lost, that is chronologically in Tolkien's life. If you come to The Hobbit not from the point of view of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, um, or even the published Silmarillion, but rather you come to The Hobbit from the Book of Lost Tales and, you know, the alliterative Narn and the alliterative, uh, or, and the, the Lay of Lathian, if you come to, and the 1930 Silmarillion and all that stuff, if you come to The Hobbit from that direction, Thorin and company look different. Um, not, you know, dwarves are not heroes, right? Um, uh, they, uh, most of them are pretty bad lots, right? Um, but even, you know, uh, uh, you know, so even though Thorin and company are kind of an exception and they're still pretty good, at the end of the day, they're dwarves, right? Um, and, uh, we sort of see how dwarves end up behaving, um, there at the, uh, uh you know, with, Thorin leading up to the battle and everything else. It's it's not just like an otherwise great and virtuous character being corrupted by the dragon sickness. It's like his dwarfishness coming out. Right? It's the way dwarves carry on that kind of way. Thorin rises above that. Thorin's descendants rise above that. But again, in Tolkien's world, um, it's not the sort of morally questionable elements of the dwarves in The Hobbit that's a surprise. It's the other way around. And I don't think... People have characterized the depiction of the dwarves as like a, a complete shift. Like, all of a sudden in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, the dwarves are the good guys. I don't think it's quite as sudden as that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think the boundary is actually as sharp as all that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but... Um, Yeah. Um, okay, no, I, I talked about the elf thing. All right, moving on, because I'm like, 
like we're just flying through slides tonight, um, like nobody's business. I want two examples of something that I think is another really important element in this poem. Blodren's Doom. The dawn over Doriath dimly kindled saw Blodren's Blodrin bore son by a beech standing, with throat thurled by a thrusting arrow, whose shaven shaft, shod with poison, and feather winged was fast in the tree. He bargained the blood of his brothers for gold, thus his mead was meted, in the murk at random by an orc arrow his oath came home. So Blodrin betrays them to the orcs, right? But he receives the fit mead, right? The fit payment, the fit recompense for his betrayal. How? Why? Because the, you know, does he get like what Gorlim the unhappy gets, right? Which is, you know, he is in turn betrayed and killed by those to whom he, you know, I'm thinking of course of the Baron story in the published Silmarillion. No, that's not what happens, right? You might think that that's what, I mean, that, 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 that could be, you know, that would, that could work. That would be fine, right? To have like, you know, oh, and then the orcs thank him for his betrayal by killing him. But that's not what happened. He, in the murk at random by an orc arrow, his oath came home. So he swore the oath with Beleg and the others. And how about that action, right? Beleg is like, I've got a great idea. Let's swear an oath just like the sons of Fanor, because that'll be great. Won't that be great? Who who wouldn't want that? Let's do that, right? Uh, and and they're all, and they're all except for Blodrin, They're all like, yay, right? But it seems to be a good oath that they swear. Um, <laughs> what could go wrong? Says Arthur. Um, yeah, I, I, it seems to be fine. In fact, if anything, it seems to be like uh, the 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 primary consequence that we see of it is what happens to Blodren. Right? Blodren wasn't real excited about the oath thing, but he obviously took it, and then it, it's 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 effective, right? Um, uh, he it's it's this this oath does actually kind of seem to work out well. You know, we have to um, we have to give uh, give uh, give, give acknowledgement. I think of that, but anyway, the point is, what the, one of the reasons that this passage really jumped out at me was, we are shown justice being done, not just like if he had been discovered and killed by Beleg. Or, you know, like that his, 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 his betrayal was discovered and Belag or Turin killed him. Or if, again, the orcs had just been like, hey, thanks for uh, betraying the camp and then cut his throat. Um, you know, the, either of those endings would work, you know, would be sort of just in, in certain ways. But we get neither one of those. Instead, Tolkien gives us a third thing, which is fate striking him down, right? Him being stricken down by some kind of destiny, Right? Uh, in the dark, at random, he took an orc arrow through the throat, and thus his fate was fulfilled. Um, yeah, Eric, it's a demonstration of doom in action, absolutely. He is doomed um, by his breaking of his oath. But the question is, who's enforcing that? Assuming this just... Is it that we're not... I assume we're not supposed to be here... We're not supposed to react to this by saying, wow, what a freakish coincidence. I mean, dang. Who would have expected that, right? Well, well, you know, fluke chances happen, I guess. It's obviously not a coincidence, right? Um, it's not really chance. Um, 
In other words, there seems to be another activity at work. That seems to me important. The story of Turin is taking place in a world which is not by any stretch a world of senseless injustice. And we see that in Blodrin's case. An important point, I think, um, in the context of the story of Cursed Turin, right? Um, one question that it is easy to ask, especially in the later versions of the Turin story, is how do Iluvatar and the Valar let this all happen, right? Well, they're, they're there, right? This is not happening. They're not ignorant of what's going on, and that's interesting all by itself. Uh, in in a similar way, this it's not in this sense as spectacular. That is, it doesn't suggest a you know a, any kind of direct intervention you know on the part of somebody off to the west. Um, but um, um, but there's another example that I thought was interesting, which is Thingol's judgment on 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 the Orgoth murder. Uh, listen to the the way that this works. We get details here that are, that we don't get elsewhere. He in council constrained the kin of Orgoth to forget their grief and forgiveness show, in that willful bitterness had barbed the words of Orgoth the elf. Said his hour had come that his soul should seek the sad pathway to the deep valley of the dead awaiting, there a thousand years thrice to ponder in the gloom of Girthrond, his grim jesting, ere he fare to fairy to feast again. Yet of his own treasure he oped the gates, and gifts ungrudging of gold and gems to the sons he gave of the slain, and his folk well deemed the deed. Okay, so two things here. First, he judges, um, he judges, Orgoth had it coming, right? This is, uh, this is totally Orgoth's fault. Um, uh, Remember, in the later versions, Thingol is going to condemn Turin. Especially in the Narn, he like has condemned Turin until Beleg finds uh, uh, the Nellis, the elf woman, who has fallen in love with Turin, right? But unfortunately, like she, you know, they don't do the Baron and Luthien thing, right? But she falls in love with him from afar, and she testifies and explains about how Cyrus came and attacked him first from hiding, and so that Turin didn't lie in wait for him. So only with her critical evidence we get that, like, courtroom drama moment, right, in the Children of Hurin and, and, and in the Narn. Um, so Turin, or Thingol, rather, was deciding against him. Um, this Thingol doesn't do that at all. Right, he sees the whole thing from the beginning. Says, "Look, his uh, uh, his hour had come, and and more." Right, he doesn't just say he brought his own death upon him, but uh, he's going to go to the place to the deep valley of the dead awaiting, and there he's going to sit for at least three thousand years to ponder his grim jesting, ere he fare to fairy to feast again. Um, Thingol not only says that his death was his own fault. But he's going to spend three millennia thinking it over before he's allowed to come back in the body. Not that he has the authority to decree that exactly. This seems to be, uh, you know, Thingol's you know, merely foretelling this. But um, but it's a 
it's a that's a pretty serious deal, right? So again, the there's no like oh there was almost an act of injustice just averted at the last minute and yet still too late to bring Turin back. None of that, right? Immediately, Thingol says sees everything clearly, and justice is immediately and forcibly done, right? But then more. But then there's more. Um, and Nancy, you got it right away. Thingol pays a wear guild to, to Orgoff's family, to Orgoff's sons. Um, the reason you pay a wear guild is to prevent vengeance, right? So um, the, the, his folk well deemed the deed. Um, Thingol's people the kin of so the kin of Orgoth, yes, Thingol has decreed that um, uh, you know Turin is 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 not guilty of Orgoth's death, but that doesn't mean that the sons of Orgoth might not go after him, right, to avenge the death of their father. Um, but uh, they receive a wear guild, not because Orgoth didn't deserve it, but to forestall vengeance. And this is the fair-minded thing to do, the paying of a wear guild in the case of accidental death. That's what you do. That's, that's, that's old-time law. Um, if you kill somebody accidentally, you, you know, if you kill somebody on purpose, you're liable to be executed you know, in like your criminal trial, right? Um, but uh, even if no criminal charges are brought against you because the death is found to be accidental... Um, or, you know, at least, you know, not your fault, you could still be prone to civil charges, which in the old days took the place of bloody people chasing you down at your house and stabbing you to death. So to prevent that, uh, the, 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 the wear guild um, would have been paid. Thingol pays it on Turin's behalf. Uh, you know, so, so everyone is, so justice is appeased. Everyone is sitting there saying, okay, we're good. This is all, Orgoff gets what he deserves. His kin are paid out. You know, there's no vengeance. It's, Again, the world in which we're operating in this story is a world in which justice is done and done swiftly. That's important, I think, in the story of Turin. Now, uh, from here I want to move to the centerpiece of the entire poem, certainly as it's been written so far, and that's the death of Beleg. The death of Beleg at Turin's hands is in any, any version of this story one of the most horrible, tragic moments, um, uh, you know, in all of Tolkien's works. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I think I would rank like most horrible, tragic moments in Tolkien's corpus, and like in the top five, like at least three of them <laughs> would be would be the death of Beleg at Turin's hand in different versions. Um, so it's all. Um, it's all it's 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 a really powerful moment every time Tolkien tells it. This is by far the most extended and most powerful version of that story that we get, and we get so many things that we don't see anywhere else. Um, and uh, and as I say, it's really sort of the the the, the centerpiece. Um, we spend uh, more than half of of uh, of part one on on this i mean it's 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 huge it goes on for a really really long time um but let's um let's let's review some of the highlights of the story here um here's beleg just about to you know he, he and he's he's met flinding and the two of them are going to go or he is 
saying, the two of them are going to go rescue Turin from the camp. Thou wilt join his journey to the jaws of... So, so uh, Beleg has just cried out, right? He's just cried out in defiance of the orcs when he learns that Turin is near. And he's like, I'm coming for you, Turin! Right? He's shouting out in the darkness, and Flinding is like, please shut up, you idiot. Um, Thou wilt join his journey to the jaws of sorrow. O bowman, craze it, if thy bellowing cry to the orcs should come. Their ears, then cats, are keener wetted. And though the camp from here be a day distant where those deeds I saw, who knows if the gnome they now pursue, that's me, that crept from their clutches as a crawling worm on belly cowering, whom they bleeding cast to deathly swoon on the dung and slew of their loathsome lair. O light of Valinor, and ye glorious gods, how gleam their eyes and their tongues are red! Yet I, Turin, will rest from their hungry hands, or to hell be dragged, or sleep with the slain in the shades of death. Thy lamp shall lead us, and my lore rekindle and wise woodcraft." Nancy says, ha, they're still kind of like cats. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Good, good. Um, So, what do we see in Beleg here? Note, he is, he's bold, but he's not simply rash, right? You know, the depiction of, of Beleg, I think, is really important here. Beleg knows full well what he's doing. Flinding paints it in no uncertain terms, right? I was their prisoner. I just barely escaped. He speaks of himself in very non-arrogant terms, right? Depicting himself as creeping from their clutches as a crawling worm on belly, cowering, whom they bleeding cast. Um, so he's depicting not like, here's how I escaped, right? Here's, you know, they, 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 not not only a am I trying to arouse your compassion for me, please don't make me go back there, but also this is what they do to to gnomes, right? This is what they do to elves. Um, this is what you're likely going to end up like if you go there, right? Um, Beleg, I Turin will rest his resolution, right? He's not rash, he's not foolish, he's not berserk, right? He knows the risks. He does have compassion for Flinding, but uh, he is absolutely staunch and unmovable in his determination to rescue Turin and no risk to himself, no depiction of how horrible things could turn out are possibly going um, to uh, to sway him. Um, then, of course, after this, they, you know, we have this is the uh, the first time, as Christopher Tolkien explains, we get the uh, uh, the scene of of uh, Beleg shooting the wolves, right? His 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 feet of 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 archery in the darkness, um, killing the wolves in order to open up the spot in the ring, and then the two of them dragging Turin's body out with great difficulty because he's very large and strong, and they have a hard time carrying him. Um, and uh, we get that moment of the portentous fall when um, Beleg falls over and breaks his lucky arrow, right? Which he f- So his arrow came back to him as that arrow always comes back to him, but he breaks it and wounds himself with it. Um, uh, this sort of terrible foreshadowing of what's about to happen, his own weapon uh, turned against him. Uh, and his most, you know, faithful and trusted uh, thing becoming, uh, you know, w- turning against him and wounding him. Um, and uh, then, of course, 
we have the 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 greater description of his uh you know the 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 greater detail of him cutting Turin's wounds and him accidentally cutting Turin uh in the dark the terrible fight because again even more detailed uh uh of of their actual fight and then the death and then Turin's recognition Turin's reaction to Beleg's death is what I really want to focus on here Flight he sought not. That is, so remember, he thinks he's being, he still thinks he's being attacked by orcs. He thinks he just killed the first one, and he's going for the next one, right? Turin does. Flight he sought not, at flinding, leaping with his last laughter, his life to sell amid foes imagined. But Fuelin's son, there stricken with amaze, starting backward, cried, Magic of Morgoth! Ah, madness damned! With friends thou fightest! Then falling suddenly, the lamp o'er turned in the leaves shrouded, that its light released, illumined pale, with its flickering flame, the face of Beleg. Then the bowls of the trees, more breathless rooted, stone... Sorry, I did that wrong. Than the bowls of the trees, more breathless rooted, stone-faced he stood, staring frozen on that dreadful death, and his deed knowing, wild-eyed he gazed with waking horror, as in endless anguish an image carven. So fearful his face, that Flinding crouched and watched him, wondering what webs of doom, dark, remorseless, dreadly, enmeshed him by the might of Morgoth, and he mourned for him, and for Beleg, whose bow should bend no more, his black yew-wood in battle twanging, his life had winged to its long waiting in the hills, in the halls of the moon, or the hills of the sea. Um... Yeah, Arthur, the magic of Morgoth, I think, is not just an expression of his, but rather, yeah, he is immediately struck. This guy must be cursed. Like, only Morgoth, only the only the malice of Morgoth could bring about such a horrible thing as what just happened right there. Um, again, it's almost like, uh, you know, Bordrum being killed by the arrow in the dark, right? It doesn't just happen by chance. Flinding is looking at this and being like, oh, something this absolutely indescribably horrible doesn't just happen by chance. That seems to be Flinding's response. Um, We get the description of Turin that, of course, though with more detail, sounds like the description in the Silmarillion, him, you know, more more breathless than the bowls of the trees, rooted, stone-faced, staring on that dreadful death which alliterative phrase, of course, is retained in the published Silmarillion. Um, his deed knowing, wild-eyed, he gazed with waking horror as in endless anguish, an image carven. He looks like an image of endless anguish. Um, but then, I, I, I think this is, you know, there. not all of this poem is excellent. I mean, the story really does get better. Tolkien's uh, storytelling gets better, uh, later on, but this scene I love. There are so many touches in this scene that I think are really brilliant. I love how it shifts here to Flinding's perspective, not just his view of Turin, right? though that's important too. Notice Tolkien doesn't attempt to describe. He describes sort of visually what Turin looks like, but doesn't attempt to describe Turin's state of mind, right? Wild-eyed he gazed with waking horror, right? That, like, he's touching on it, 
But again, he's not trying to give this from Turin's perspective. He's not trying to give us what's going through Turin's head at this moment. Instead, he shows us the scene from, from Flinding's point of view, right? As Flinding is looking at Turin from the outside, and he's describing him just like, like, an, like an image, an anguished, an endlessly anguished image, carven. And then Flinding himself mourns, mourns for Turin and mourns for Beleg. In this moment, Turin's, Turin's grief and horror at the death of Beleg is so overwhelming that it would be impossible for Turin's experience to kind of bring us along with it. We get this pause in Flinding's point of view to mourn over Beleg, right? Like We, the readers, kind of want to mourn over Beleg too because Beleg was awesome. Right, um, Turin is way too caught up in the indescribable horror, um, and, and we get through Flinding, who knew Beleg only a little bit, uh, transmitted to us this opportunity to sort of pause and remember him. Right, whose bow should bend no more, his black yew wood in battle twanging, his life had winged to its long waiting in the halls of the moon or the hills of the sea. In a little eulogy for Beleg, which is nice, but which Turin is in no position uh, to give. Um, it's like Turin, or uh, Flinding's grief is within within measure to be articulated, whereas uh, Turin's sort of defies that. Um, but this is, that's pretty much all that we get. The published Silmarillion then says, then like, you know, uh, then there's a storm, right? And the orcs run away and then Turin is, you know, Eo, and then Gwyndor, of course his name changes too, uh, then takes, uh, takes Turin and guides him away while Turin is still kind of in a daze and doesn't know what's going on. But, but we find more. Then numb with fear, in hoarse whisper to unhearing ears, he told his terror. This is Flinding telling his terror. Like, the orcs are going to come catch us. For Turin now, with limbs loosened, leaden-eyed was bent, crouching crumpled by the course moveless. Nor sight nor sound his senses knew, and wavering words he witless murmured. Ah, Beleg, he whispered, my brother in arms. Though Flinding shook him, he felt it not. Had he comprehended, he had cared little. Um, that image of, of Flinding numb with fear whispering, not to Turin, but kind of at Turin, right? At Turin's unhearing ears, he's whispering to Turin his terror, right? The orcs are going to come. We're all going to... You realize we're all going to die, right? We're all about to die. I'm very sorry about Beleg too, but we're we're both going to die, right? Turin's ears are unhearing, but he's not just standing there. At first he's standing there, as moveless as the boles of the trees. Now, though, he collapses, crouching crumpled by the coarse moveless. That phrase, that alliterative phrase, crouching crumpled, um, I find so evocative. And I love the use of coarse. Um, coarse, of course, it means corpse. Uh, but that's an old word. That's, that, that's a Middle English word, coarse. Um, that's, what, um, that's what Maori, Sir Thomas Maori, calls dead bodies all the time in the Arthurian legends. Um... Uh, so it's it's a it's, it's even the the sort of the antiquity of that word I find really moving in that context, um, uh, and we get words from him. Ah, Beleg, 
my brother in arms. Um, we can see his grief for Beleg. His blank horror is hard to read, right? That is, because it's so complex. We, I mean, yes, he's sad about the death of his friend. He's horrified that he himself brought about the death of his friend. He is staggered by the terrible, deadly irony of the fact that he killed his friend just after his friend had heroically... when his friend was in the midst of heroically rescuing him. Um, uh, and, you know, all the sort of the guilt associated with that. But that is to say, that blank horror that he has at first, and which um, you know, is all we really get told about in the Silmarillion, it could be... We don't know, like, how much of it is grief for Beleg, how much of... Like, basically, how, how, how much is he thinking about Beleg, and how much is he thinking about himself, right? And, and self-loathing. Again, I'm not blaming him for loathing himself, but again, what we don't see is him grieving here. We do get him grieving. It's nice to see... It makes me feel even worse for Turin that he, in fact, does say, Ah, Beleg, my brother in arms. We He's not just focused on himself, right? He's not sitting there saying, like, I am so unlucky. He is. But that's not what he's saying, right? His We see his first movement here um, being, uh, being to, uh, to, 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 to grieve for his friend, for his brother in arms, that he has lost... There's more to it, but but nevertheless, we see that there, and I think that's really powerful. Then the storm. Storm happens in the Silmarillion, right? But man, the storm! Now wafted high, now wavering far, the cries of the Glamhoth called and hooted, and the howl of wolves in the heavens roaring was mingled mournful. They missed their paths, for swollen swept their swirling torrents down the blackened slopes, and the slot was blind, so that blundering back up the beaten road to the gates of gloom, many goblins wildered were drowned or drawn in deadly nightshade to die in the dark. While dawn came not, while the storm riders strove and thundered all the sunless day, and soaked and drenched, flinding Gofuelin with fear speechless, there crouched a quake. Cold and lifeless lay Beleg the bowman, brooding dumbly, Turin Thalion, near the tangled thorns, sat unseeing without sound or movement. Um, yeah, Erica, it's, it's like the heavens cry for Beleg, the combination of grief and wrath, right? I mean, this Silmarillion says there's a storm, right? But holy cow, is there a storm? And again, you know, there's this... The Silmarillion hints, at least it says that the orcs are afraid of these kinds of storms because they fear the wrath uh, of, you know, those scary people off in the west, right, of the Valar. But, I don't know. Silmarillion, it always seemed to me to sort of... At least it was kind of left open... Is it really? Right? Or is this just the orcs being superstitious? Right? Is that what we're supposed to be getting from this? That the orcs are superstitious? No, it's pretty clear <laughs> that this, this this storm is sent by the Valar. Again, like the death of the traitor, we see... I, I, again, I would argue we see pretty clearly the Valar intervening directly in this story much more than we see them in other versions of the story. And that's really interesting. And man, how about that tableau? All th- these three, you know, these three guys, all still, you know. So this 
tumult and orcs being drowned and hurtled around and fleeing back and uh, and and in the middle of it, flinding, crouching, quaking, fearless for a whole day as the storm pounds down around them, and uh, uh, and you know orcs are crying and wolves are yelling and drowning and whatnot, and Beleg's lying dead and Turin brooding dumbly, uh, sitting next to him. It's uh, it's. It's this, it's this incredible tableau, especially in the context of that horrible storm beating down around them. It's such an evocative visual image uh, that we get of the three of them. Still not done. The orcs had gone, their anger baffled, o'er the weltering ways weary faring to their hopeless halls in Hell's kingdom. No thrall took they, Turin Thalion, a burden bore he, then their bonds heavier, in despair fettered with spirit empty, in mourning hopeless he remained behind. Oh, the terrible irony, right? Turin shall not be a thrall, right? Uh, remember, that's an echo of Morwen's wor- words. Morwen sends Turin to Doriath so that he should never be a thrall. The son of Hurinthalion shall never be a thrall, right? Uh, and thanks to Beleg and Beleg's heroism, Turinthalion isn't a thrall. No thrall took they, Turinthalion. Except now he is in despair, fettered with spirit empty in mourning, hopeless. Uh, he is enthralled. He is burdened far more heavily than he would have been had he been successfully carried back to Angband. Um, wow. Oh, and wait, there's more. He arouses enough to have a conversation with Flinding. In the woods, Flinding, who's continuing to say, you know, we really should go. I abide by Beleg, nor bid me leave him, thou voice unfaithful. Vain are all things. O death dark-handed, draw thou near me. If remorse may move thee from morning loosed, crush me conquered to his cold bosom. Flinding answered, and fear left him for wrath and pity. Arouse thy pride. Not thus unthinking on Thangorodrim's heights enchained did Hurin speak. Curse thy comfort, lest cold were steel. If death comes not to the death craving, I will seek him by the sword. The sword, where lies it? O cold and cruel, where cowerest now, murderer of thy master? Amends shalt work, and slay me swift, O sleep-giver. He speaks. Right? I mean, again, we get so much more from Turin here. We see so much more of what's going on. First, we saw his just... His simple grief, his friend, his brother-in-arms, was dead. As we saw, Beleg gave him a family, right? Beleg was his one tie back to life, you know, back to love, back to, you know, the, the, the one thing in his life, at least as he perceived it, which was not about rejection, right? And now Beleg is gone, and his first response is grief, and now despair, right? Now he seeks death. He's asking death to draw near him, and Flinding says, hey, that's not how your father would talk. Right? Um, But he doesn't care. Right? He blames the sword. Where's the sword? Where's the sword that killed Beleg? Um, You killed Beleg. He's like, he's gonna, he's gonna make it make amends. Right? That sword needs to atone for its deed, and it will atone by slaying him, 
swiftly. Thus, avenging his friend, Beleg, and uh, uh, also having done this terrible wrong, it will do a good thing for once in helping Turin to get what he wants, which is death. Um, where lies the sword? What happened to the sword, do you remember? In the poem? Anybody remember? Where's the sword? It's in a tree. It's not there. They left it behind. Um, Flinding picks it up off the ground, the stained sword, and um, uh, hides it. Hides it away. It's, if I recall correctly, it's the opening lines of uh, part three. In the wrong section entirely. Yep. Flinding go foolin, faithful hearted, the brand of Beleg, brand means sword, the brand of Beleg with blood stained, lifted with loathing from the leafy, leafy mound, and hid it in the hollow of a huge thorn tree. Then he turned to Turin, yet tranced brooding. Um, so he, uh, he, 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 he lost, he lost the sword in the tree. The sword, the story of the sword seems to be over in the poem, right? Um, that's a big deal, right? Though notice, of course, you can hear the sort of echo, the, the anticipatory echo of the conversation that Turin's going to have with the sword later on. Here it's just a conversation about the sword, right? But uh, um, um, though he does address the sword, right? Oh, cold and cruel, where cowardest now? It's the sword he's talking to uh, there. But... Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, Sarah, you're right. Sarah King says that you have to admire Flinding. No one ever listens to him, but he sticks with Turin, although he could have escaped. Absolutely. And he's terrified um, the whole time, right? He, he, and, and Sarah, I'd add, he went with Beleg, too, right? I mean, he could easily have said, and I don't think Beleg would have blamed him, uh, I've got a better idea. How about you go, right? I'd like, I like. I just escaped, and I'm not in good shape anyway, and uh, I, I've got like a little PTSD going on. I really think you should go. I'm sure Beleg would have understood, right? But um, but no, he goes with him, right? And helps carry Turin out at great risk to himself. And now, as you say, Sarah sticks with him. Um, yeah, Erica wonders if fate would have delivered the sword back to him later in the poem. I doubt it. It sounds like the sword's done. Besides, which there's nothing special about the sword. There's something special about his bow, right? Um, but there was nothing special about his sword. Um... Uh, Beleg's sword, I mean. So apart from the fact that it was the instrument that that killed him and, and you know, sort of the means of this whole tragic moment, um, it doesn't seem to be intrinsically important in any other way or to have any kind of power or significance or uh, or, or anything like that. I think I think we're done with the sword um, in, uh, in, in this version. He's going to get his black sword, presumably, um, uh, in Nargothron, but we haven't gotten there yet in the poem, so we don't really know for sure. But I, I, given that you know, he gets a black sword forged for him in Nargothrond in every other version of the story. I assume that that's what's going to happen. Um, but, uh, okay, so he is despairing. One thing, by the way, one little small point, Flinding's wrath, right? When Flinding, when Turin is seeking death, Flinding, Flinding is aroused from his fear to wrath and pity. 
it's important that he has the pity as well as the wrath, right? Um, but that is, he's scandalized, clearly scandalized by Turin's despair in seeking death. Um, and that, I think, is an important piece of context for later on. One of the questions, and we talked about this in in the Book of Lost Tales class when we got to the end of the Turin story, and one question that I that I sort of posed, which I think comes up for a lot of people, though not everybody totally articulates it when they talk about it, is like, how big a deal is the suicide supposed to be? Um, do we... That is, you know, in Catholic tradition, which of course we all know Tolkien was Catholic, in Catholic tradition, suicide is a big no-no. It's a very serious sin. It's murder. And it's a murder you can't repent for afterwards. It's a big deal. Um, so, uh, are we supposed to... You know, when we read the end of Turin... It's not obvious from within the story, at least certainly in the published Silmarillion, that the suicide is condemned, that it's wrong, that it's a sin, it's tragedy, it's horrible, but is it, um, is, you know, how are we supposed to respond to the end in that way? Um, so we talked about that a little bit in the Book of Lost Tales class. Yeah, I encourage you to go back and listen to that class um, if you want to sort of see more of the details of where we get there at the end of the, uh, of, of the Book of Lost Tales version of the story. Um, but this is an interesting little piece of information. Again, we don't ever get to the suicides, of course, in this story and this, you know, in the poem. But um, but Flinding's wrath, right? Um, his shock at the despair, um, particularly in the son of Hurin Thalion, right? It's not how Thurin, and this is not how Hurin talks, right? It's not how Hurin Thalion talks, um, and um, so anyway, I just think that that's kind of uh, that's kind of interesting. Um, now, he's brought to the spring, right? Um, and uh, you know the springs, the, sp- the spring, the you know he's brought to Evren. And uh, one thing to note, um, I was going to put this up, but I already have too many slides anyhow, um, so I didn't. But take notice. Did you notice how strong the power of Olmo is here, uh, Ilmir, as he's called? Um, it's the same as said in the published Silmarillion version, but it is much more heavily emphasized. And Olmo's role in healing Turin is much more plain uh, in this. Again, at that place and that time, once again we see the Valar intervening on Turin's behalf. Um, so, uh, again, this is not... Turin is not, is not... In this poem, he is not alone in an uncaring world. Um, so again, that I think is a really important moment. Then he sings, right? Flinding hears a voice singing. Um, and remember, Turin is a great singer, right? He is a, he is a master minstrel, we were told earlier in the poem, though we hadn't been told that in the Book of Lost Tales. And he sings the song, which he calls the Bowman's Friendship, right? The, the, the lament for Beleg. Um, then, even more, he has that vision, so he has this vision, and he has this vision of this 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 hillside and this valley, and everything is blasted and dead. Um, the scene is very much like it's it's it seems to me anyway very much like the the place where the orcs were camped, where from which Beleg rescued him, um, uh, though more blasted and dead. Um, but anyway, back to his vision. The leafless limbs they lifted hopeless were blotched and blackened, barkless, naked, a lifeless remnant of the leaven's flame, charred chill fingers, changeless pointing to the cold twilight. 
It's a pretty grim setting. Leaven, of course, is lightning. This is one of those words Tolkien taught me, and I had, don't ever remember seeing anybody else use. Um, but leaven is a very old word for lightning. Um, so we're looking at a lightning-blasted, burned-out... Um, that's why blackened and not only blotched. Uh, lifeless. So we've got the dead bushes and trees lifting their leafless limbs hopelessly. It's pretty bleak. There called he longing, O Beleg, my brother, O Beleg, tell me, where is buried thy body in these bitter regions? See, it's, he's, he's returning in his vision to that area where Beleg died, right, right next to the camp. And the echoes always answer, and the echoes always him answered, Beleg. Yet a veiled voice, vague and distant, he caught that called like a cry at night or the sea's silence. Seek no longer. My bow is rotten in the barrow ruinous. My grove is burned by grim lightning. Here death, here dread dwelleth. None dare profane this angry earth. Orc nor goblin, none gain the gate of the gloomy forest by this perilous path. Pass may they not. Yet my life has winged to the long waiting in the halls of the moon or the hills of the sea. Courage be thy comfort, comrade lonely. Beleg's spirit in his vision seems to be telling him... So, Turin's looking for his body, Beleg's body, in the vision. And Beleg is telling him, don't seek any longer. My grove is burned, the barrow is ruinous, by grim lightning, like the storm that came down around them. So, the whole place has been blasted out by lightning, by the storm riders, right, that we saw fighting before. Um, oh, wait, so, like, as if there were, like, a thunder battle was going on there, right? Like, things up there fighting in the sky? The storm was kind of like that. It's an interesting image. I wonder if we, we, could, we could come back to that. Maybe. Yeah, another book. Um... But note what he says about this. So, so what? So he's trying to say, "Hey, uh, hey, touring buddy, don't worry about it. Uh, my body is buried in the woods here, which got all like blasted and burned, and like my gravesite has been like hideously desecrated and it's barren and awful now. So don't worry, right? No, that's not what he's saying, right? It kind of sounds like that at first, but then he says, "Here dread dwelleth. None dare profane this angry earth." Orc nor goblin, none gain the gate of the gloomy forest by this perilous path. Pass may they not. Yet my life has winged to the long waiting in the halls of the moon or the hills of the sea. So, Turin, there are two reasons you shouldn't seek my body. Reason number one, my body's taken care of. Are you worried that orcs might come and find and desecrate my grave? Fear not, been taken care of. Right, um, this place was blasted by lightning, which sounds bad, but it's been made a place of dread to the orcs. Right, no orc or goblin dare come to this area anymore. In fact, this used to be, uh, I, you know, uh, I died here because I was rescuing you from their camp, which was right alongside the highway that they were taking back up to Thangoradrim. Right, but 
Now they've had to abandon this highway, this whole entrance, this path into this dark forest, this, uh, you know, forest that you don't dare to get lost in. Um, uh, they don't. They, they can't even use this path anymore. It's been warded from them. Again, it seems like we have. Again, it was. Did this really happen? Is this really what that place looks like now? We don't. I mean, it doesn't say that that's definitely happened. But given how awful that storm was, I could totally believe it. Um, Beleg is saying this place has been has been destroyed. It's been burned out by the power of the Valar, presumably. Right? It has been made a place of dread to the orcs. So that's one reason not to seek my body. The other reason, I'm good, actually. My life has winged to the long waiting in the halls of the moon or the hills of the sea. Um, so don't look for me back in there. But, you know, my, uh, uh, my, my bow is, is uh, rotten in the barrow ruinous. Um, you're not going to find my body. You're not going to recover my bow. You know, that is, my bow shall not return to battle, um, you know, as this sort of symbol of, of his life. Don't seek for me, because I'm gone. Um, but his description of being gone doesn't seem that bad, right? My life has winged to the long waiting in the halls of the moon. Um, Courage be thy comfort, comrade lonely. Oh, comrade lonely. Um, Courage be thy comfort is his final uh, his final word, right? Be comforted, be comforted, be comforted by courage. Remember that talk we had about turning your anger in constructive ways against the orcs. Don't forget what I taught you, right? Courage be thy comfort. Look how much, comparatively, how much closure Turin gets on this, right? Um, he gets to say goodbye to Beleg, or at least hear Beleg say goodbye to him in this vision. That's unique in the Turin story that we get this. Um, by the way, so I have a little theory um, it's not exactly a theory, just kind of a fun idea. Um, Turin sang a song, right? And we're not told what it was. And uh, that is, you know, we're not given it. We're not given any lyrics to it or anything. We're just told from Flanding's perspective, as so much of this is, that he sang this song um, called uh, The Bowman's Friendship, and which uh, we're told becomes, a, you know, a, a, a great hit um, in... Um, in 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 Nargothrond, you know, it's like the, the top of the charts in Nargothrond. Um, uh, after this, you know, maybe uh, maybe this is Turin's song again. I think of the prominent place that the death of Beleg and Turin's grief for the death of Beleg plays in this poem that we get. I mean, it's it's. It's what over a thousand lines of this poem dedicated to this that whole sequence, um, you know, from from the assault of Beleg, you know, the the the, the pursuit of Beleg, all the way through the healing of Turin's uh, of Turin's grief um, at uh, at the at the lake. Um, uh, it makes me wonder if you know this is sort of supposed to be, in some sense, a, a, a reflection of that song. It's why we don't need to be told it because we've been kind of uh, we've been kind of reading about it um, as we've gone through. Okay, plenty of time to talk about Nargothrond. No problem. I'm right on schedule. Um, let's look at Nargothrond uh, really briefly here because I think it's 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 an interesting point. Um, 
but I want to focus mostly on Turin, so we're not going to spend too long with this. But I wanted to, to just glance at the reception that Oradreth gives them, which I find really fascinating. The depiction of Oradreth personally, the depiction of the elves of Nargothrond, quite different than what we might expect, certainly if we're coming at this from the published Silmarillion. Uh, Flinding tells them, tells Oradreth who they are, and that he knows he doesn't actually need to say that, because it will have been reported to him already. That tale was told us, returned to answer the Lord Oradreth, but belief were rash, that alone of the lost, whom leagues afar the orcs of Angband in evil bonds have dragged to the deeps, thou darest home, by grace or valor, from grim thraldom. What proof dost thou offer? What proof dost thou proffer? Sorry, of course it must alliterate. What plea dost show that a man, a mortal, on our mansions hidden, should look and live, our league sharing? Thus the curse of the kindred for that cruel slaughter at the swan's haven there swayed his heart. But Flinding, Gofuelin, fiercely answered, Is the son of Hurin, who sits on high, in a deathless doom, dreadly chained, unknown, nameless, in need of plea, to fend from the fate of foe and spy? Flinding the faithful, the far wanderer, though form and face uh, fires sorry, though form and face, fires of anguish and bitter bondage, Balrog's torment have seared and twisted, for a song of welcome had hoped in his heart at that homecoming that he dreamed of long in dark labor. Are these deep places to dungeons turned, a lesser angband in the land of the gnomes? Um this is uh um yeah, Erica loves the epic response of uh, of Flinding to Oradreth. I agree. This is a uh, that uh, the um, and I just love. Wait, I'm go back a little bit. I love his sentence. The uh, the the sentence that begins Flinding the faithful. Right. Uh, I love his sin his syntax here. Flinding the faithful, the far wanderer, though form and face, fires of anguish and bitter bondage, Balrog's torment have seared and twisted. For a song of welcome had hoped in his heart at that homecoming that he dreamed of long in dark labor. Um, the 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 delay and delay of the verb, which is had hoped. Right. The the the, the noun starts the sentence. Flinding the faithful, right? Flinding the faithful is the subject of the sentence and the verb. What does flinding the faithful do? Uh, eventually, after long delay in which comes a lot of torment, had hoped in his heart, had hoped at heart, in his heart uh, uh, for, you know, maybe a song of welcome, perhaps, at his homecoming that he dreamed of long in dark labor. The delay of his hope with the torment in the middle, that's, that's gorgeous. I mean, that is oratory right there, with the way that his own syntax uh, sort of conveys his experience of torture and the long-delayed hope and the disappointment that he finds when he comes home. Man, that's good stuff right there, right? Um, are the deep places to dungeons turned a lesser angband in the land of gnomes? Man, this is a this is a serious smackdown that Flinding is laying on Oradreth here. Um, uh, not to mention also, um, Turin doesn't have to speak up for himself. Flinding is going to do it, right? We don't see Turin. I'm going to guess. You know, I'm I'm sort of asking myself, what would published Silmarillion Turin do, <laughs> right, if he had met this kind of response 
from Orodreth when he'd gotten to Nargothrond. Um, it's hard to see Silmarillion Turin taking that sitting down, right? Um, but he doesn't defend himself, right? He doesn't have to speak in pride, defending his, you know, how dare you take me for a slave? Remember, it's very like Baron's response, right? You know, so I will, you know, there are words I will not take from you, he says to Thingol, right? Baron does, when when Baron is brought before Thingol at first. Baseborn nor thrall, right? Um, and he declares his lineage, right? We see almost exactly the same things being done on Turin's behalf, but he's not doing it, Right? He's not speaking up even like Baron did. He's just remaining silent, and it's Flinding who's, uh, who's bringing the response. Um, and <laughs> Sarah King says, the Silmarillion Turin would probably just rename himself Turin the Insulted, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, but, but again, this is, uh, uh, this, is, this, is, this is a different Turin. So anyway, um, I... Let's uh, let's 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 continue on with uh, Turin. This is a I find a a, a very striking uh, line here at the beginning. Thus fate it fashioned that in Fuilin's house the dark destiny now dwelt a while of Turin the Tall. There he toiled and fought with the folk of Fuilin for Flinding's love, Lo- lore long forgotten learned among them. For light yet lingered in those leaguered places, and wisdom yet lived in that wild people, whose minds yet remembered the mountains of the west and the faces of the gods, yet filled with glory more clear and keen than kindreds of the dark or men unwitting of the mirth of old. See what we get here? Turin, caught, as it were, between two influences the dark and the light, right? On the one hand, this dark destiny lies upon him because of the curse of Morgoth, right? And that dark destiny dwells for a while in Fuelin's house. Glorund, in the Book of Lost Tales, Glaurung in the published Silmarillion, accuses Turin of being a curse to all that are near him, right? To all that harbor him. Um, but he's, by implication, held responsible for that, right? It's your fault, Turin. That's what the dragon is telling him. Now, the dragon is a liar and a malicious liar. But again, this published somewhere early, and to me, does actually kind of read more like that, right? It is unquestioningly Turin's arrogance and folly that leads to the downfall of Nargothrond. Um, and and his stubbornness, his rejection of the emissaries of Olmo and all that stuff. Now, again, you know, we've got to be fair. We don't see how Turin's going to handle any of those situations here in the poem. He may end up, uh, uh, you know, doing equally stupid things. We don't really know. But, um, but it's, you know, we don't get that we're... We're not prepared for that, you know, sort of his time in Nargothrond is not framed at the beginning by, and then Turgon came, which everyone later on wished he didn't do. The dark destiny of Turin the Tall now dwelt a while in Fuelin's house, right? Yes, he brings this dark destiny with him, but that's not his fault, right? Yes, the dark destiny comes to Nargothrond, and he brings it. 
but it's more tragic, and he seems to be, again, at least from here, less culpable of that. And again, we see him on, at the same time here learning lore long forgotten, uh, learning among them. He's he's learning the lore of Valinor, right, from these elves, these gnomes, who still remember the mountains of the West and the faces of the gods, filled yet filled with glory more clear and keen. Um, <coughs> so, <clears throat> this dark destiny lies upon him, and yet he's also being influenced by the light and the memory of the light. <coughs> um, so, uh, is there hope for Turin? Is he going to be their destruction? Again, you know, most likely he is going to be their destruction. But, is there a chance? Could the light, you know, the reflected light from the west overcome the dark destiny? Uh, I don't know, but wait, let's keep going. So Finduilus has a vision too. Turin had his dream of Beleg and Beleg's grave. Finduilus has a dream. Um, Yet to Turin was turned her troublous heart against will and wisdom and waking thought. In dreams she sought him, his dark sorrow with love lightening, so that laughter shone in eyes new kindled, and her elfin name he eager spake. As in endless spring they fared free-hearted, through flowers enchanted, with hand in hand, or the happy pastures of that land that is lit by no light of earth, by no moon nor sun, down mazy ways to the black abysmal brink of waking. Dad's adorable, right? What a cute dream. She, it's not cute. It's a beautiful dream that she has, right? She sees laughter shining new kindled in his eyes. She dreams that she... That love for her lightens the dark sorrow in his eyes, and that she sees laughter shining, uh, new kindled in his eyes. I mean, how lovely is that? Yeah, she dreams of her love saving him, Arthur. That's exactly it. Saving him, um, certainly saving him from his grief, right? And perhaps bringing him into light in, in, in some... Maybe his dark destiny can be... Anyway, that's what she dreams, right? And she dreams of him turning and speaking her elfin name to Nuvia... No, wait, other elfin name. Phylivrin, Phylivrin, right? She's going to speak... He's going to speak... He's going to call her by her elvish name. And, uh... And they're going to fare free-hearted through enchanted flowers, hand-in-hand, or the happy pastures. Can you imagine the phrase, happy pastures being used in any context in any other version of Turin's story. Uh, but anyway, okay, so, uh, but notice wh- where where are they wandering? You notice? where they, in, in her dream? Where are they wandering? This seems important. Again, especially thinking back to the last passage. In the West, Sarah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, a land that is lit by no light of earth, by no sun nor moon. Yeah, by the trees, presumably. Remember, these are gnomes, right? These are Noldor. Uh, they, they, these are um, Fendulus. My understanding is that Fendulus also remembers the West; that she is an exile. Um, so she's remembering Valinor and imagining bringing Turin to that kind of bliss to that kind of happiness, perhaps literally, until down the mazy ways to the black abysmal brink of waking she is drawn. 
right? The black abysmal brink of waking is such a uh, such an incredible phrase to describe the end of a good dream. Um, <laughs> Brian Yoder says the only way you could imagine that phrase being used in the other in the other Turin stories would be and those happy pastures were burnt and trampled and defiled uh, <laughs> something like that Brian um, ah, good so uh, so does she have the power to to take his dark sorrow from him perhaps even his dark destiny Even the other versions of the story imply that that's the case. Um, remember that even in the published Silmarillion, Turin is told that his destiny is tied to Finduilus, and had he saved her, had he rescued her, things would have gone otherwise. Right? The possibility is held out. Different versions of the stories to varying degrees much more explicitly in the Book of Lost Tales version, um, according to the one that immediately precedes this, there is very clearly the implication that had he um, had he joined with Finduilus, had he married Finduilus, had he rescued and married Finduilus, it would have been okay. He would have averted his destiny. That his, dest- his final destiny wasn't sealed until he failed to rescue Finduilus, and then it was over. And his doom, and that's what leads to the incest subplot um, and the completion of his terrible destiny. So, Fendulas's dream, possible, possible, a prophesied uh, future. But there's more. From woe unhealed, the wounded heart of Turin the Tall was turned to her. Amazed and moved, his mind's secret half-guessed, half-guarded, in gloomy hour of night's watches, when when down narrow winding paths of pondering he paced wearily, he would lonely unlock. Then loyal-hearted, shut fast and shun, or shroud his grief in dreamless sleep, deep oblivion where no echo entered of the endless war of waking worlds, Woe, nor friendship, flower, nor firelight, nor the foam of seas, a land illumined by no light at all. That is one complicated sentence. Uh, The sentence stretches from line 2215 there all the way down through line 2225. It's an 11-line sentence. Let's make sure we unpack this, because this is a powerful, powerful sentence. So just first, wow, Turin loves her back! Turin loves her back! How about that? Right? Um, the wounded heart of Turin the Tall was turned to her. Wait, is her vision coming true? Right? Wow. Okay. Amazed and moved, his mind's secret... That's the subject of the sentence. Or no, that's the object. Crap. That's, that's a, the object. That's the, it's the topic of the sentence, but it's not the, it's not the grammatical subject of the sentence. Um, amazed and moved... Um, he, so he, Turin is amazed and moved to find that he is falling in love with Fendulas, right? His mind's secret, half-guessed, half-guarded, that is by himself. He is half-guessing and half-guarding 
his mind's secret. Again, it's a secret from himself. He doesn't want to admit to himself that he's falling in love with Finduilas because he knows that Flinding, his friend who saved him, loves Finduilas. And remember that really moving passage when Finduilas is t- when F- Flinding is talking about his beloved who's back in Nargothron. Let's go back to Nargothron because my beloved is there, and I, you know, have been like was a thrall and escaped, and I really want to see my beloved again. And Turin's like, okay, yeah, let's do that, right? Um, so you know, so he knows, like, he doesn't even want to want to entertain uh, the idea of his loving his friend's beloved, right? So that 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 secret in his own mind is half guessed, half guarded again by himself. In gloomy hour of night's watches, when down narrow winding paths of pondering he paced wearily, he would lonely unlock. So at night, right in the gloomy hour of the night's watches, when he was. Uh, uh, pacing wearily down the narrow winding paths of pondering, right? When his mind wanders down these secret ways at night, he would sometimes lonely unlock his mind's secret and think about Finduilas and loving her. And then loyal-hearted shut fast and shun, right? Then he would shut it and put it away. No, 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 no. I'm not going there. I won't do it. Or shroud his grief in dreamless sleep. His grief, the grief that is beginning to pass his wounded heart, which is turning to her, but also, of course, his grief at the fact that he can't love her because she's Flinding's beloved and he won't be unfaithful to his friend, right? Um, the one friend that he has gained again, having lost Beleg, he has still... He doesn't have a brother-in-arms anymore, you know, whose blood has mingled with his and everything, but he's got Flinding, right? Flinding is all he has left in the world. Um, and loyal-hearted, he's going he's gonna to shut it fast and shun it. Um... So what's so what then? What recourse does he have? Half guessing, half guarding, his mind's secret. He's gonna shroud his grief in dreamless sleep, deep oblivion where no echo entered of the endless war of waking worlds. Right? His waking world is this endless war, right? Half guessing, half guarding, um lonely unlocking, shutting fast and shunning. Woe nor friendship, flower nor firelight, nor the foam of seas, a land illumined by no light at all. That's where he shuts himself. So his wounded heart, you know, maybe laughter coming back to his eyes, right, as as in Finduus's vision. But no, he has to hide from that because of the circumstances, to hide from that and take refuge in a land illumined by no light at all. Um... Yeah, Arthur says, what's the opposite of her dream of the West? Yeah, that's the opposite of her dream of the West. Isn't that awful? So, the the emotional complexity of this moment is, I mean, it's like 50 times greater in the poem than in any other version of the Turin story. This is amazing. And wait, there's more. Oh, hands unholy, he says to himself. Oh, hands unholy, oh, heart of sorrow, oh, outlaw, whose evil is yet unatoned, wilt thou, troth-breaker, a treason new to thy burden bind, thy brother-in-arms, flindingo foolin, thus foully betray, who thy madness tended in moral pe- mortal perils, to thy waters of healing, thy wandering feet did lead at last to lands of peace, where his life is rooted, and his love dwelleth? O oh, stained hands, his hope steal not. He calls Flinding his brother in arms, right? Again, he, he's not Beleg, but um, he's not going to betray. If, you know, it's like 
and notice that we, we, we get this like flashback flashback what the heck is that it's flashback to Beleg um, bound to, to a tree in the camp of his people right of his outlaws right um, no we're not going there again we're not going to let that happen again I am not going to be the traitor to my brother in arms I am not going to bring suffering to my no 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 not happening oh stained hands um, his hands stained with Orgoth's blood well, yeah, no, that's not. It's Beleg's blood, obviously, right? Though again, the 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 um, outlaw whose evil is yet unatoned makes it sound like at first he's referring to 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 Orgoff. Um, but um, but it's clear, obviously, he's really thinking about Beleg primarily here, which of course is leading him directly to Flinding. Flinding is in. <laughs> Sorry, I was just wrong. Reminded of the phrase in loco parentis, right? In the place of parents, right? Flinding is in, in loco beleg. Um, uh, uh, in loco belegonis or something. Anyway, um, thus love was fettered in loyal fastness and coldly clad in courteous word. Yet he would look and long for her loveliness and her in her gentle words his joy finding, her face watching when he feared no eye would mark his mood. This is worse than unrequited love, right? Uh, you know, she loves him and he loves her, but they can't... I mean, man, and that... that I can't imagine Silmarillion Turin finding joy in her gentle words and watching her face when he feared no eye would mark his mood. Remember, Turin, who won love with difficulty, right? Um, people rarely loved him because of his, you know, sadness, remember, his serious demeanor. Um, but, of course, he won Beleg's love, and then we saw how that turned out, but he's somehow gained Flinding's love, and then, you know, Flinding comes out of nowhere, and, and Flinding has uh, has not loved him the same way that Beleg did, but but aided him and helped him, and he loves Flinding in return for that, right? Um, and yet, oh, the sadness of this terrible love triangle that we get here in Nargothrond. It's a love triangle in in every version of the story, but no, I mean, like in the published Silmarillion, it's, a, it's one of those tragic love triangles where everybody's looking in the other direction, right? Um, this is far more painful than that especially in the context of the uh, Turin's love issues, his issues with love and loss throughout this version of the poem. Um, and that we get near the very end of this poem, this glimpse of the longing in Turin's heart, it's so sad. Turin, in, in the, you know, the, 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 the lay of the children of Hurin, Turin, is always loving and always losing. Morwen, Beleg, uh, Flinding, Finduilas, Neonor eventually, presumably, right? Um, and just think, I mean, just like getting the distant, distant echoes of how painful that would likely have been in this poem, right? Um, his love for his wife, Right, uh, and uh, and then the you know recognizing that you know the horror of recognizing that it's really his sister and and um oh oh man this this you can see how that's being set up 
uh, and how awful that's going to be. Um, in this poem, we do not get the self-absorbed, impatient, foolhardy, arrogant, overconfident guy that we get in the published Silmarillion. I mean, let's call a spade a spade here, right? This Turin is loving, vulnerable, strong, passionate, right? Sometimes overpassionate, but, uh, but, but yet still not only, um, not only endearing, but, uh, um, but, but, uh, good. I mean, he doesn't make very many bad choices. We haven't seen him in this poem, and what we get of this poem so far, I mean, okay, I, I give him a pass on Orgoff, like, yeah, he wasn't minding his might and everything, uh, but he, uh, um, he, you know, so like, okay, like, killing Orgoff wasn't a, wasn't a good move, but, you know, okay, I'll give him a pass on that. Yes, his, you know, teen rebellion phase in the woods is not admirable, right? Um, but, but again, it's not the same kind of arrogant foolishness that we see when Beleg comes and says, "Hey, it's okay. You're pardoned. Your your foster father who loves you forgives you completely. You're not, and everyone agrees you're not guilty. Come back, please, come back." And he's like, "No, I'm not going back." Right? Um, there's, there's there's nothing like that in this poem. Um, now, it's true, we don't see his later choices. We don't know what's going to happen with the bridge and the dragon, right, and the destruction of Nargothrond. We don't know what's going to happen with uh, uh, with uh, with almost messengers. We don't know what's going to happen with Finduilus, ultimately, and his failure to save Finduilus. That's especially hard to foresee, I think, in this version of the story. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with, uh, uh, you know, with, you know, back up in Hithlum, or with Brondir, or Nien, or any of that stuff. So, you know, this could be a really bright beginning that has a really dark ending, for all we know. I mean, his character could go really far downhill. Um, but, in my mind, there is no question, this is the most appealing Turin ever. Um, Sarah King is wondering if maybe Tolkien decided he couldn't bear to do all those horrible things to this Turin, and so hardened him up a bit in later versions. Maybe. I don't know. Um, good. Well, I actually if you'll believe it, came within two slides of finishing tonight. Notice slide 19 tonight. Um, but um, those two actually are on a different subject anyway, so I'll save that for next time. And uh, next time we're going to talk about... So read the whole second version when he goes back and starts it again. Remember I told you that was his pattern, right? So when he goes back and, and sort of uh, st- starts again the second version of The Lay of the Children of Horan, we'll talk about that next time. Um, and uh, then after that, we'll move on to the uh, brief intermediate stuff and then the Lay of Lathian afterwards. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, coming along here with me. As usual, I hope uh, you'll all uh, not be too sad. Uh, at least we don't get to the most horrible things, uh, you know, in, in the end of, of, uh, of this Turin story. I agree, Sarah. It, I don't know if Tolkien felt that way. But at least we don't have to see this tour and go through all that stuff. Uh, Anyway, thanks everybody. Good night, and I will see you guys next week for a little bit more touring. Thanks. Bye.